Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to episode four of the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 weeks. This week in episode four, we are looking at Excalibur number four, still crazy after all these years, originally published in January 1989. Creative team is Chris Claremont on writing, Alan Davis on penciling and plotting, Paul Neary on inks, Glynis Oliver on coloring, Tom Orzachowski on lettering, and Terry Cavanaugh on editing. Your wisdom has forged this ring. Hereafter, so that we remember our bonds, we shall always come together in a circle to hear and tell of deeds good and brave. I will build a round table where this fellowship shall meet, and a hall about the table, and a castle about the hall, and I will marry. (laughs) And the land will have an heir. Knights of the Round Table. This is one of my favorite issues of the entire series, largely because of a particular scene with Kurt and Megan, which I look forward to making us all discuss in depth. So I'm excited about that. And I am also excited about our guest today, who I will introduce in a moment. But first, we'll introduce the usual team, starting with myself. I am Dr. Anna Papard. In addition to being Kurt Bogner's unofficial PR manager, I write and talk about representations of gender and sexuality in comics and pop culture. I'm the editor of the recent anthology, Super Sex, Sexuality, Fantasy, and the Superhero. And I am still in shock that I host a podcast about my favorite comic book series. I am joined, as always, by Mav, if you want to introduce yourself. Hi, um, it's Chris. For Maverick, you can call me Mav. I am a PhD student, all but dissertation. I am an adjunct professor at University, or uh, Duquesne University and Mount Aloysius College, two different places. Uh, I'm the host of the Vox Popcast, popular culture podcast, and I am a longtime avid comic book reader. Most of my research is on representations of gender, sexuality, race, and class in in 20th century pop culture. So comics are right up my alley. And uh, as you've heard on the previous episodes of this podcast, podcast. Excalibur is one of my longtime favorites. He's been reading it since issue one. Yes, since issue zero. <laughs> since issue, yes, of course. Um, and Andrew, tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm Dr. Andrew DeMann. I'm a lecturer at St. Jerome's University, and I am the project lead for the Claremont Run, which is a complicated beast, but a big study on Chris <laughs> Claremont's writing with um, a big social media micro-publishing focus. And I'm also published in other stuff, so you can look me up. You're published in many, many places. And um, we'll have some links to, we'll, as usual, sort of links to some of our relevant publications in our in our write-ups on the show. And what are you? How many followers do you have on Claremont Run these days? You're like over six thousand, right? Uh, yeah, I think we're just over six thousand now. Yeah, see, like for an academic account, like doing deep dives into old comics, I think that's pretty darn good. But I assume it's just Russian bots. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, every time, like, I have significantly fewer followers, and every time I drop a follower, I like, oh, maybe it was just a bot, and I was like, no, I probably posted too much stuff about Nightcrawler. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, as I mentioned, we have a very exciting guest on the pod this week. We are joined by Sydney Heifler, who is a comic book historian who specializes in romance comics. She's a graduate of Oxford, yes, that Oxford, and is currently pursuing a PhD in history at The Ohio State University. Her work's been featured in Panel by Panel and Journal of Graphic Novels and Comics. Um, we first met a couple years ago, I think, at the Michigan U Comics Forum. So I wanted to come have you on the pod because of your romance comics work, because we've been talking a lot about um, genre bending in this particular series, and I thought you'd be a wonderful person to speak to that a little bit. But I'm curious, because we haven't really talked about it much, but was this your first time encountering Excalibur? Is this your, are you going in cold? This is your first issue of the series? I'm going cold, and I'm really excited about that. And so I purposely did not read anything else except for the issue that you sent me, because I wanted this to be like, a new brand new experience and I honestly had no idea what Excalibur was about before the first time I saw Excalibur I was like is that like King Arthur or something like I had no idea and I saw superheroes <laughs> and I was like that doesn't make any sense <laughs> so yeah this is my first time like do you have any sort of prior familiarity with kind of X-Men stuff or are you sort of like really going in cold like well no so I watched the, all the X-Men movies obviously even before I got into comic book research I had a huge crush on Hugh Jackman and then I you know I watched all the <laughs> Who doesn't have a huge crush on Hugh Jackman? It sounds reasonable um, to me. Yeah, so, yeah, I follow it, and I always thought X Men were really fun. Um, and I, I, you know, collected some X Men toys because who doesn't, you know, and, and stuff like that. I've read a few X Men comics and um, some other Marvel comics, but no, I haven't really ever really dived into X Men in comics in any sort of serious way. So in that way, it was also still relatively new for me. Also, I should mention I used to watch like the X Men cartoons growing up a lot, but I was really confused because I used to think all cartoons were part of like one cartoon universe so I didn't really conceptualize <laughs> them as the X-Men so yes in a lot of ways this is all brand new to me oh my god I love that I love that massive cartoon universe um, I, I'm not I, I can't say she's wrong I mean no it, it, all, it all makes sense to me yeah <laughs> Exactly. They're all friends. No, that, like like in the cartoon All-Stars cartoon. I was going to say, cartoon. They, all, <laughs> every once in a while, all cartoons get together and they try to convince you to not do drugs. It's yeah, like that was yeah. that was my impression. Um, well, I want to talk a little bit more about first impressions, but I think we'll do sort of our intro to the issue, our little summary first, and then we'll get back to some of those first impressions because I am so excited to have a total newbie on the pod to be like, what the hell did you make of this thing? Um, so as I mentioned, I'm hoping that we'll get people reading along with the pod, but if you haven't read this issue in a while, maybe not since Reagan was president all he oh he would have just been switching over anyway he, he, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he was he was still he was just he was still president he was being term limited at this point. yes, yeah, I yes mean, and yes. he's never really left our consciousness so you're not quite incorrect <laughs> <laughs> true well technically the final days of his official presidency um but if you haven't read the issue since then you might want a little bit of a summary of what happens so we will do that first so Excalibur number four is still crazy after all these years opens in a romantic vein with Courtney Ross, the ex-flame of Captain Britain, aka Brian Braddock, gazing nostalgically at a photograph of herself in a passionate embrace with Brian in his original Captain Britain uniform when she was still a quote-unquote young and used a month's worth of wages to buy up all the tickets at a Kisses for Cancer fundraiser. Kind of stalkery, but also you follow your passion. Courtney packs up to head home after a long day at the office, being the ice queen manager of Fraser's Bank when she's attacked by the Crazy Gang. The Crazy Gang is an Alice in Wonderland-themed group of supervillains with a complicated backstory. They were created back in Alan Moore's run on Captain Britain by a guy known as Jim Jaspers in a reality warping event. It's a whole thing, um, but we'll we'll talk about that a little bit. The short story is the crazy gang are neither human nor sane, which makes them difficult to deal with. Courtney proves her resourcefulness by fighting off the crazy gang, but ends up jumping into a cab driven by none other than the gang's current boss, frequent Spider-Man and X-Men foe Arcade of Murder World fame. The next day, Shadowcat, aka Kitty Pride, and Phoenix, aka Rachel Summers, are seen at a department store that isn't quite Mark's and Spencer shopping. Rachel is supposed to be picking up some more conservative attire so as not to attract quite so much attention when the team is out and about in civilian spaces. She hates it. So she makes Kitty dress more like her, i.e. 80 sexy. Hello big hair, crystal studded shoulder pads, and enormous statement jewelry. Kitty says she hates it, but actually sort of likes it? Maybe? But twist, the money that they get out of the Fraser's bank machine is fake. It's images of the crazy gang on it rather than the good old queen. Back at the lighthouse, Megan, wearing a teensy tiny bikini, checks in on Nightcrawler, aka Kurt Vogt, 
Wagner, as he's constructing a jungle gym in the basement, they flirt, or at least Kurt does in his own unique manner, literally sweeping Megan off her feet, tossing her into the air, and then tickling her until they crash to the ground in a messy pile. Megan leans over Kurt to ask if he's okay. He says it was worth it to bring this sparkle to her eyes. Megan, an empathic metamorph, transforms into a female version of Kurt as they almost so nearly kiss. At the last moment, they're interrupted by Brian's voice from another room. Megan flies off frantically, ashamed, while Kurt similarly berates himself. The team uses the messages on the fake money to determine Courtney Ross has been kidnapped by Arcade and the crazy gang. Brian flies into a rage and attempts to go after them. Rachel stops him. The team will go after Courtney together. Elsewhere, Arcade has dressed up Courtney Ross as a playboy bunny and ordered her to make jokes in front of a hissing horde of toothy monsters to avoid getting stomped on by a giant mechanical foot. Luckily for Courtney, she's funny as she manages to stave off getting squished. Still elsewhere, geneticist Moira McTaggart and her bodyguard Callisto are seen riding a train (laughs) and discussing undisclosed irregularities in Rachel's medical workup. Before Moira can explain, that robot that we have been running into frequently, who is still not officially named Widget, turns a train bridge into a dimensional portal and Moira and Callisto vanish. Finally, Excalibur arrives at Arcade's base of operations and confronts the crazy gang. Brian, true to form, goes off half-cocked, which allows the gang to use a mind-swapping device on the team. Brian gets switched with Tweedledope, Kurt gets switched with Jester, Megan gets switched with the mechanical knave, and Rachel becomes the executioner. Rachel's situation is complicated, which we will get back to. The issue ends with the mind-swapped Excalibur taken prisoner, all except Kitty and Lockheed. Okay, so this was another issue in which a heck of a lot happened. So maybe uh-huh. let's start Let's start with some first impressions, and maybe let's start with you, Sydney, since you're reading this for the first time. Andrew and Mav read this when they were like 14, 15. I read this for the first time about 12 years ago, but you're coming in fresh. What was your first impression? Did this make any sense to you? Highlights? Yeah, so, um, yeah, I, I actually did make, because we open up with some romantic themes, some tropes, and I was like, I know what this is about. This is all I read in romance comics, um, especially the whole buying all of the kisses. That's very much yeah. something you would see in a romance comic. I was here for it. I was like, yes, I would do the same, most likely. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, well, when Anna said it was stalkerish, it was it kind was of... stalkerish, yeah. Um, <laughs> not proud, no, just kidding. Uh, but, so, that was really cool. I really enjoyed that. And then there was the 80s themes that were coming across really strongly, and I've done some work on 80s stuff, so I recognized that. And then there was, there's just a lot of good things in this comic. It was hectic, but I loved it. Also, when we got to that Nightcrawler scene, I mentioned this to you already, Anna, but I was like, I did not know that Nightcrawler was fine as hell. Like, I feel like I've been cheated. Where was that Nightcrawler in the X-Men movies? Like, forget Captain Britain. Like, give me Nightcrawler um, all the way. And I love the visual rhetoric that was employed from Playboy and other sort of more masculine um, comics. Or, this is a masculine comic, but more like that kind of traditional pinup vernacular that's been used in a lot of publications that were aimed at men in the earlier post-war era and so um i was very excited to see that i think this was like very well artistically done in that i think it was very clever um yeah so i loved it i want to read all the comics now you've converted me wow well i mean that's definitely one of the goals of the pod i mean as kurt wagner's unofficial pr manager a huge goal of the pod is to let everybody know about the good version of nightcrawler so we are already succeeding in that yeah we've done it like why why bother do all the rest of the episodes no i want more i want more i want more recognition <laughs> I'm glad you found it like sort of followable to an extent. Well, what about you, Andrew and Mav? Like, Andrew, I know this was your first issue of Excalibur that you actually read, was it not? It was, yeah. It was confusing, I, I think, the first time I read it. And I-, I think I developed that really important Excalibur literacy skill of just like letting things go. <laughs> like, this is not going to make sense. I should just read the next scene kind of thing. And I do remember being deeply affected by the Excalibur, or sorry, the, the-, the Kurt and Megan scene, uh, exactly as I'm sure we're going to talk about. Yes, we are um, definitely going to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, so it was one of those things that kind of, I don't know, there, there's that famous poem, I give you the end of a golden thread, and the poem is the golden thread. The idea being that it's going to be confusing as hell, but it makes you want to unravel it. Mm. And I feel like Excalibur issue four kind of does that. Like I, I wouldn't call it well-structured or well-composed in terms of like your, your usual narrative structure and ideas of resolution, but it made me want to read a lot more Excalibur, which is, you know, 
great. Oh, that's so, yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, I have such a hard time deciding whether I could say a comic book like this is well composed because it depends what you're getting out of it, right? I mean, we talked yeah. way back in our first episode about Excalibur is sort of teaching you a way to read it as it's sort of developing what it does, right? And so the breakneck pace of this, I feel like by issue four, like starting at issue one, I'm just like, yeah, this is Excalibur. Like, I kind of know what this is now, but it's interesting. Yeah, yeah, like encountering this for the first time and like what we make of it. How about, how about you, Mav? First impressions? Yeah, okay, so... As I've said on on all of our, our previous episodes, I was reading this real time as it's coming out. I was 14. I was exactly, I was a 14-year-old comic book reader. I was exactly the age that is being targeted here. There's a lot of, we'll, we'll talk about in a little bit, male gazy moments in this particular comic, mm -hmm. which were obviously drawn directly for me. So I get what's going on. <laughs> what's interesting about it is um, I'm coming for the, at this from a place where I've been for seven to 10 years now at this point reading comics reading x-men comics uh this is just before i started working in a comic book store so i had certainly comic book literacy but this is very much not the formula for a 1988 comic this is it's a january 1989 issue you said the end of the you know the end of the reckon presidency this would have come out he would have officially left office office in january so two months early for a publication date this would have come out probably in november so i've been reading comics for a while and this is not the standard X-Men formula. Your standard X-Men comic opens up in the middle of a fight. Everybody yells their name. We, you know, we <laughs> and and we and their powers. And then we we sort of progress from there. This is a 24 page story. The fight starts on page 19. Like this yeah. is mm -hmm. this is very much not the mode of how an 80s comic is constructed. It's less weird probably reading it in 2021. But at that time, this is just it's very odd. And I, I think I want the readers to appreciate our, our listeners to appreciate how odd that is given the context of when it actually came out it is entirely a story this is you know this is sydney's first issue but this is a story that even though it is sort of jumping into the middle of these people's lives like courtney is looking at a picture of herself from years ago with no reference to why her hair is a different color we did that a couple issues ago and we're not doing it so it's dropping you in the middle of the story but it is very much sort of about establishing relationships even though Courtney's alone, we start with establishing Courtney's relationship to Brian. Then we move to establishing Kitty and Rachel's relationship with each other. Then Kurt and Megan's relationship with each other. And then Brian's relationship with the team. And we sort of rolled through how everybody is affecting one another until we finally get to the story actually starting on page 14 when you see Arcade talking to court. There's a lot of relationship building here. Yeah, and we talked a little bit in our last episode about sort of some of the domestic qualities of Excalibur, right? And I think we mm -hmm. see that here as well, although I thought we saw it even more so in the last issue, the moving yeah. day issue. Yeah. Um, but well, let's start talking about romance then and bring Sydney a bit more into the conversation here. I'm curious, you're saying, Mav, that this is very unusual to have kind of, in a lot of senses, that this issue, despite having a lot of action and a lot of particularly zany action, it is framed by romance and relationships are really central to this comic. And we're sort of identifying this for us as, you know, primarily superhero readers, although we read all kinds of things, but we're very versed in the superhero genre. We're identifying this as being unusual for the superhero genre in this time in particular. And yet superhero comics and romance comics have a long intertwined history. Absolutely. Is that something that you're able to speak to at all, Sydney? Like some of those interconnections between superheroes and, and romance comics? And we know that Simon and Kirby created Captain America and they also created the romance genre. Yes, yeah, of course they created the romance drama. That Everyone knows that story. You know, Simon saw someone reading a confession magazine, remembered that his wife liked confession magazines and then was like, hey, let's do this in comic book format. And it took off, you know, that whole um, the myth, the legend. Yes. But yes. yes, I can definitely speak. I mean, Kirby purposely brought a lot of romantic themes to co superhero comics when he got into those in a big way, you know, after the whole romance comic situation um so yeah that definitely happened but in terms of this specific issue yes there's a lot of relationships between this issue and romance comics and i was thinking about it because in a lot of ways you wouldn't think it when you first look at this comic the panels are not constructed in a way at all that mirrors the 1950s romance comics that i read a lot of um you know the, oh, the fashion oh, yeah tell us yeah. about that in what, what in what sense are the panels different to you there's so much more like re like rectangular instead of square not that rectangles don't exist in romance comics but i just feel like this is much more gridded and also longer panels like the panels are just taller and that is just very different and there's a lot more um change between like close up and far away 
between of the characters and so you just don't see that also you get a lot of like women alone in panels where they're not crying about man and so there's you know (laughs) and there's women talking to each other and it's not about a man it's about clothes you know and so you have like in a lot of ways this is very different but like you start off like I said with that that kissing booth thing and that's such a that you would see that you would see that in a romance comic that would be like a really fun little story but what is different is that in romance comics it tends to only be one story it's not like a character that you get invested in it doesn't appear constantly there's no like no fandom surrounding a certain character so that's very different and then but another similarity is that we get to um that whole you know the whole interesting love triangle situation first of all love triangles always in a romance comic usually between two guys and a girl it's it's a commonly used thing usually to help a girl realize that she um likes the wrong type of men and she should like good boys um but in here it's a little bit different we don't quite think either of them are bad boys although nightcrawler he's given off some bad boy vibes i must say um (laughs) but but what is interesting is that when you see, um, is it is her, I can't remember her, is it Megan? Megan, when you see mm-hmm. Megan yes. freaking mm-hmm. out about Captain Britain over the other character, sh- she's only freaking out about it in sort of this thought balloon. And that is very much a romance comic thing. If a lady in a romance comic is freaking out about a man liking someone else, it's always in a thought balloon. These women do not oh. get to speak about it. And so you see these women constricted. So you also see that. And if you also notice that character is not in the same sort of visual rhetoric as the other character she's drawn much more like a playboy sort of character Mm -hmm. softer Mm -hmm. more curvy and so it's like i don't know if that was on purpose i imagine it was it kind of places her in a different sort of genre she's almost kind of like in a romance comic form but not quite because they weren't drawn in bathing suits usually well they were but not like that as a consistent thing and they were a little bit different stylistically but you can see how she's kind of different so there is definitely a lot of romance comic-y things about this thing but it's also very different and but yeah so I hope that answers your question. I was looking for it. But yeah, and and also yeah, but the, the character she's silenced just like in a romance comic in the thought bubble. I thought that was fascinating. Mm-hmm. I love that. That is really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, again, we've talked a lot about sort of genre bending and blending when we've been talking in our previous episodes, and it's you know I've been thinking about different ways that that works, right? And partly as you're saying this, I'm just like I almost want to be like, are certain characters in the title operating within different genres, and is the genre mixing coming out in the interactions with the characters? You know, like is Kurt sort of operating? in one genre Megan's operating in another genre Ryan's operating in another genre and like we sort of sometimes see genre mixing in that way perhaps and that's like a really interesting possibility and then another thing about the genre bending we have Courtney right um and I want to I want if I could take a moment to address a particular issue with Courtney if, is that is that okay definitely okay okay so I just love when she's put in the playboy bunny outfit can we talk about that like that is totally they're drawing of this visual rhetoric that's very much like we're kind of the good girl art right and mm-hmm. but but they play with it they put her in that but they play with it in a really cool way and what's interesting is that instead of constantly being subjected to the male gaze which she obviously is she takes this moment to kind of um take this sort of feminine mask that it's an idea that's been put forth by um evans and thornton in their research on fashion but she takes this sort of feminine masks and uses it to distance herself from her the people or the monsters I should say that are watching her and take control of that moment because it's funny when they say oh she's she's successful at being funny in that one scene where then the monsters are, and then she's not killed by the giant shoe but mm-hmm. she's using her body in a way that's very feminine in that moment so she kind of takes control so that I feel like is more they're kind of beating re- readers expectations they're pulling in the sort of older good girl art style but then playing a trick on readers like oh but she's actually taking control of that moment so that's another issue of genre sort of bending like taking it in and then twisting it in an unexpected way yeah and I love that because that speaks to what can be really empowering about sort of about genre bending you know both on sort of a representational level but I mean also sort of for a reader participation thing too right to get us introduced in this romance mode and then we see a number of sort of problematic romance tropes introduced throughout the issue as well but to have Courtney chained into a very kind of different type of character or at least kind of use those tropes 
tropes, you know, in a sort of manipul I don't want to quite say empowering way, but certainly to be manipulating some of those tropes by the end of the comic. That's such a fascinating journey for her from sort of the beginning of this comic to the end of this comic. And I mean, there's so much that I feel like we could say about sort of her fashion, like as that happens to, you know, that outfit that she's wearing at Fraser's Bank, which is very buttoned up with the sort of military details. Like it's this flowing dress with sort of the military details up top. And that's sort of such an interesting choice for some of the dualities of that character. Yeah, I, I would like to talk about Courtney a little more for exactly those reasons. So just a little background of when I was reading this in 1988, this is the issue that I fall in love with Courtney Ross. Um, yeah. And it, it it's a, we'll discuss on, on episode five, we'll discuss this further because this will, <laughs> this will matter in the future. But but in, in Courtney's first few appearances in this series, and remember, I had not read any Captain Britain before this. I knew, had very little understanding of the character. She was just sort of, she filled a role. It's like, oh, okay, she's going to mm. be the, the other woman in Brian's life. Got it. And do I need to care about her beyond the fact that like she's just there to cause trouble in Brian and Megan's relationship? And that's how I thought about her until this issue. And then I never really analyzed how I felt about this until now because I was I was 14 and not like, you know, PhD math. This is child math. So I didn't really think about it other than, oh, she's actually cool. But what's going on here? We've got not only does she have her militaristic outfit that you were just talking about, she announces through her thought balloons the very manner in which she has constructed her identity. She calls herself the mm -hmm. Ice Queen. She knows what she's doing. She knows what she's doing. When she's attacked by the crazy gang right after that, she understands genre tropes. Like she understands who they are. She understands what's going on. She is aware of and not afraid of them or Arcade. You know, she references him by, by name when he kidnaps her. And when she gets put in the Playboy costume, she knows what she's doing. She knows what this means and she knows to play into it. She makes a dedicated choice, you know, not on accident to, you know, I'm going to tell jokes, but I'm going to tell jokes while standing backwards and sticking my butt in the face of these monsters while arching my back so that I can look sexy. I am playing to the gaze because I know I can manipulate the creatures here, which is odd because they're not human, <laughs> uh, yeah, but it well, works. That's yeah. like an Excalibur logic thing that you just have to follow. Right. And, and you just, and you yeah. just roll with it. But like everything about her here is uh, I am not a superhero. I am a regular person, but I understand the rules of the situation that I'm in and I'm going to work within them in order to sort of get what I want, where what I want here is to survive to the end of the day. There is so much understanding that happens in this issue, more so than what I saw last episode with her or in the previous ones. It makes her not only a real person, but a complex and powerful person. And it's a play of both her, her intelligence and her sexuality combining, which I think is just fascinating. And that connects really well to Sydney's point too about yeah. the idea of the mask. Because we could we could discuss this in terms of like Riviere's feminine masquerade. Mm -hmm. The idea that Courtney is self-conscious in her portrayal of, you know, whatever, but in this case, femininity particularly. Uh, and, you know, she's using that very pragmatically to get out of a difficult and dangerous situation. Mm -hmm. It's so it's so Claremont, too, isn't it, Andrew? Like, I mean, just I mean, it really reminds me of, again, because Arcade is involved, too. But, you know, Uncanny 204, or the whatever happened to Nightcrawler issue, which I've written about for Claremont run before, mm -hmm. you know, Judith Radziwill and, and or, sorry, <laughs> that is not her correct name, but um, it's Judith. That's the princess. <laughs> <laughs> um, in that in that issue and she's very similar to sort of the way Courtney behaves here where she's thrown into an alarming situation involving murder world and is so capable I mean she's like fighting off robotic dogs and can really like take care of herself right yeah for sure I think this is part of why one that's completely outside of Excalibur that's never read an Excalibur issue that I was able to follow it because Claremont has constructed a very like realistic woman I think especially one that's coming out of the 80s in which women are kind of combining this feminist notion of the previous decade with um, also the idea of the, the empowered work woman that wasn't quite in the feminist narrative and sort of like merging this kind of co these concepts together through this arc and then and it just makes perfect sense along with that outfit that Anna mentioned that was very like part of that narrative just made sense historically it made sense for the time period she's super convincing and I just loved it yeah I'm so interested that like yeah like that you found it very sort of understandable sort of coming from a remnants comics background but also coming from having some of this cultural background sort of that the superhero aspects of it weren't jarring for you because it sort of had a genre or elements of a genre that you recognized which again I think is part of I do think about this as kind of like an accessible series in a lot of ways through the genre mixing which can be a challenge as well and yet it hits so many different notes right because it 
has action and romance, because it has humor, because it has pathos and drama and tragedy. There's so many different entry points for this series. And I find that one of the most interesting things about it. I just had a question for, for all of you, because I was kind of, there was a moment that I wasn't quite sure if it was normal for these comics or normal for comics <laughs> in the 80s. or normal. I was like, this seems interesting. I have no idea. Uh, where it seems like Courtney has a moment where she's very aware that she's in a comic where she says oh yeah I can't I can't say that because you can't put it in print or something and I'm like does she know that does she know that her words are appearing in print and I was like very thrown off so as far as um as far as normal goes I don't I don't recall it being a normal thing as in a common thing I don't believe given anything else in the series that Courtney is aware that she's in a comic book per se she is smarter than your average damsel in distress but so a year later john byrne who has a history with claremont uh starts a series called sensational she hawk and he starts it in in 1989 another of my favorite books for that for that time and uh she hawk in that book is very aware that she's in a comic book she can bend reality because of her awareness she is it is an entirely metafictional book that plays with the narrative and there are other experimental titles that are going on at the Howard time. the Duck, Howard the Duck, example. yeah, which is earlier. That starts in the late seventies, I want to say. I don't remember the exact year on Howard. So there are other things that are doing it, but not. I, I don't know that Courtney is aware enough to the level that they're doing it, but probably more so than other people. So I think this is more Claremont playing with the with the narrative than the character. Yeah, and I mean, in terms in terms of thinking about to what degree, sort of some of the genre bending is or isn't revolutionary here too, like what do we think about the place of this sort of in the history of Marvel being inherently sort of genre bending? Because that maybe maybe get us, gets us to that question as well, because I mean, that kind of self-reflexivity is very trademark of Marvel. I mean, you know, like mm-hmm. we've been having the thing sort of look at the reader and talk to us for like right. a long time by this point, right? So Stanley and Jack Kirby appear, Stanley and Jack Kirby appear at um, Reed and Sue's wedding in like 1965. Well, and yeah, and as early like as, what, yeah, is, there what are, is their first yeah. cameo in like Fantastic Four number 10? So I mean, yeah. Yeah, something like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. and Doctor Doom's hunting them. Yeah, so the, so they're do so it does happen from time to time. It is kind of a wink and a nod at the reader, and I feel like arcades crazy enough to where like these things can be read two ways. Uh, it, it, it's sort of I, it's not it's not so much magical the way say She Hulk or Howard the Duck are or Deadpool for um, if a, a reader who doesn't know those older comics, somebody who's who's like listening to our show and thinking about things they might read today. Deadpool does this all the time in both the comics and in his films. So I don't know that it's on that level but i think it is sort of uh it's being very clever so that the reader goes ah ah see what we did there see what we did you know like i I mean maybe the interesting thing about it is that that moment is given to courtney which sort of speaks Mm -hmm. to some of the things with her agency that we've been talking about right Mm -hmm. and it corresponds with the cover of course as well Mm -hmm. Yeah, the yeah, cover wanna, is very much. I want to talk about the cover, but I'm saving it for the end um, okay. <laughs> because I do want to talk about the cover because it is one of the most iconic Excalibur covers. But um, let's talk about the Kurt and Megan scene because like, we're talking about romance, we're talking about agency, we're talking about consent. All of those things are a major <laughs> um, issue in that particular scene. So I will say first that this is one of my favorite Kurt scenes of all time. And yet it's weird revisiting it. So again, I read it for the first time maybe about 12 years ago. A lot of the consent stuff, I didn't spend much time thinking about the first time. I just really didn't. Mm-hmm. I sort of, my takeaway was just like, man, this is a great curtsy and like his personality is coming across here so well. I love so many of the ways that he's kind of like making himself accessible and things in this scene. It's just so fascinating. And yet Megan's involvement in this scene is something that we can definitely talk about and definitely question. And yeah, maybe let's kind of start from there. Did you guys sort of have also sort of those issues with seeing some of the consent issues going on in that scene and how what are the issues what are the issues either either it could be either i definitely didn't then yeah i mean the world's very different in 2021 than it was in 1988 um, but i mean i'm saying like even 12 years ago it's different for me i mean like i was a feminist i was an academic like 12 years ago but my takeaway was just like man that was a hot nightcrawler scene and i didn't think about it that much right i mean i think there's a lot of like self-validation in it that i find kind of creepy like (laughs) he makes a point of having megan be all like haha don't stop haha even Mm -hmm. after saying stop Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
so I think that just just by kind of apologizing for it with that, I feel like that actually makes it a lot creepier to me. Oh, yeah, I agree with that point. It was it was, and I had I was when she, are, we, are we talking about like the one where he starts tickling her? Like, yeah, um, yeah. 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 A, oh my well, gosh! Well, I was, note for you. Like, well, note for you too, Sydney, that this is a common move of Kurt's. Um, he had done this no. to other people several times in Uncanny X Men prior to this, so this is a go-to move for him, which right. is I definitely not, not one of the most charming like, things about it i actually had like a moment like where i was not reading this as a person who knows anything about comics even romance comics i was just like tickling to get close is the worst move in no, the world it's not good. It's not <laughs> i good. hate him in this moment and it reminded me of all the men who have ever tickled me in a move and i was like ah and so it was very like it was very that was a very problematic moment i i will say in terms of like what's in a comic i have seen a lot worse and there is a lot worse in romance comics um but yeah it was but it's the same time like i can understand why 12 years ago when you first read this you were like oh wow this is an amazing scene for kurt and mm -hmm. you know and everything but yeah no the whole issue there what it, like it really the consent isn't there and it kind of play i guess this is what bugs me about it kind of play besides the tickling it kind of plays on this whole idea of like oh a girl can kind of put up and say no but it doesn't or like yeah. suggest no but yes, it doesn't right. really mean no I mean, like, I, I do think, okay, so like, this isn't a defense of it at all. But I mean, one of the things that I find particularly interesting about the scene is the way I do think it's conscious of those issues in the sense that we get a lot of so in the panel where he picks it, where he first swoops her up, and she says, Are you mad? Her dialogue box is saying one thing, her face is clearly thrilled, right? Yeah. And we, we get mm -hmm. like a lot of that back and forth, like even, you know, in the scene where he is tickling her, and she's shouting no, and yet her face is delighted, right? So it is definitely that trope of like, like she's saying no but really means yes but we do have the complexity of that sort of playing out in the sort of like relationship between the text and the images and that's not a defense of it at all more just that like i do think there's an awareness of the complexity of it and i'm not landing one way or the other on it i think the tickling is problematic no matter what we do I have that's another question. issue oh sorry no 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 please go i was gonna say that's another thing is i was wondering it's like I, they weren't necessarily saying it wasn't problematic as they presented it like it's very much presented as here's a weird scene between two people that has some very complex problematic things going on so i don't think they put it's not like in a romance comic where people used to put things in and be like it's okay that's just how it is like you know yeah, right. um I, I don't think the creators of this comic necessarily were thinking like oh this is just how it is like it, they, i feel like they're acknowledging that it's not how it is and it's a problem between the two characters and see that's where i where i'm wondering right because i'm 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 gonna go both ways here and that's because I have background for not only this entire series, but I don't, you know, Sydney, I guess you've watched X-Men movies, but you haven't read the entire, you know, 200 issue lead up to Definitely this in X-Men. <laughs> so, so um, like Anna's right. This is Kurt's go-to move, right? And I think that in some sense, Claremont writing this in the 80s, he, he's aware of it being a little creepy, but I don't think he's being as judgmental of it in 1988 as we might see the judgment in 2021. I think that, you know, that problematic nature of, of tickling is like, it, it, it's seen at this point as and then you, you i mean i think you'll probably say this from the romance comics it's one of those weird consent loopholes well i'm not raping i'm just tickling it's different right it's not I understand. even i'm not i'm not sexy touching i'm playful touching i'm playful because touching. I'm yes, and i'm so cute yes, and Anna. i'm a boy and blah 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 right I love a, that whole i love that just really quick and i love that i love it because that's something that men do it's like i'm not sexy touching you i'm funny touching you it's yeah. fine <laughs> yeah it's a complete bullshit argument right yeah. but 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 it but that's the i think that's the mentality that kurt the character probably thinks of in this moment like it, it, it's excusing it there and what makes it work for me is not i mean we'll get to the tickling in a second i'll get back to that but kurt does this move when he's playing around in danger rooms where he's like oh look i'm going to save you and he throws her and you know the context is he's surprised when she doesn't fall he jumps over there to go catch her he's done this he's done this to people he was romantically interested in or just other people this is a total thing that he would have done to kitty a million times in x-men comics right 
and he's not romantically interested in her at all it's just the playfulness of how kurt is and i'm not excusing it it's what he it's what he does and kitty wouldn't have had a problem with it if this were amanda sefton his longtime girlfriend slash sister um he, she wouldn't have had a, <laughs> she wouldn't have had a problem with it it's weird yeah we're not gonna but yeah he has, he has a long time relationship with someone who is technically his foster sister and it's a real problem yeah but fair, like he does yeah and, and he he does stuff like this and it would have been just the cuteness of how kurt behaves i think what's supposed to make megan strong here is that she doesn't fall hey idiot i can fly you know so you can throw me it doesn't matter so that's supposed to make her tougher and it's supposed to that's where the deconstruction of like expectations to his like performative masculinity is supposed to happen what irritates me about it and makes me not able to excuse this at all because i i feel like i can excuse that he probably has blanket permission he almost certainly has blanket permission to tickle amanda and probably he could get away with it with kitty in his world he's known megan for two weeks here they don't have they don't have that relationship yet you know like like there's just i cannot excuse it the way that i can somebody like you if you're dating a person if he's dating amanda he knows whether she's uncomfortable with tickling or not if she is then he shouldn't do it if she's not and she and he knows she's protesting in jest then i'm more fine with it like you can have a playful relationship with someone you know but he met her two weeks ago and she's a girl he has a crush on and he knows her boyfriend. He knows she's involved. It's weird and problematic in every possible way. And I think we excuse it because we want to fall in love with the idea of Megan and Nightcrawler. Yeah. That I don't think is really earned. Yeah. No, I definitely (laughs) felt that pull where I was like, I want, because I like he, one thing he looks very physically attractive. I know he's like a blue beast, but Mm -hmm. like he's very, he's a very attractive cartoon or comic character. Um, and like, I really want to like him. Then too, like it just seems so much more exciting than Captain Britain, who you see, and like, well, he just looks like he came from an office, like a boring office job. He's a shirt. Like I don't want any of that. Like no, thank you. Even like when what, he tries what, what, what I... standing still, like. So, so Sydney, you're, you're you're right. But what's awesome about this is Sydney has read exactly one Excalibur comic, just this one, and she is completely yeah. understood the entire dynamic of the Megan Kurt Brian relationship and how every Excalibur fan reads. She's seen these people for 24 pages. So yes, <laughs> you are correct. <laughs> also, I think like, the, like talking about why this comic read so because like as a as a woman in modern times like these themes are super familiar to me and so I think that's another reason like that just shows the brilliance of the of these comics is that I think even though we're in a weird world where like like monsters can eat you if you don't tell funny jokes like a lot of these <laughs> themes are very familiar and that shopping scene was really very familiar this this problematic dynamic is familiar you know it's all very familiar and still has a very real human quality to it yeah and i mean well i mean i like i feel i love that by the way just like the the integration of sort of like sort of because i think i've talked before even just with alan davis's art you know his skill at sort of doing realistic human emotions and domestic spaces along with his skill at doing fantasy is just such a perfect style for sort of the genre blending that we're talking about here but i i I, like i sort of i mean i'm kurt's pr manager so i gotta like gotta like defend him like a tiny tiny bit just in not in terms of his actions but just in terms of the way this scene kind of tries to make us like him and i mean there is a thing where he generates sympathy because he is this persecuted outsider character and you like want things for him you know like you want him to be accepted you want him to get the girl and that's part of what is potentially toxic about the way this is playing out but it's definitely part of sort of something that you can read into his character motivation too in terms of this character being obsessed with being liked and obsessed with being sort of thought of as cute and non-threatening as well i think is sort of a factor in how we approaches Megan here and in terms of that final page of this encounter the pose that he strikes when he falls beneath her and she's leaning on top of him and he is being his most charming there where she's died. like you're I a beast died. not really I'm much like more charming and cuter and he's making like this little little smile expression with like you know her being again sort of in that sort of physical position of power in that particular pose that's like mm-hmm. Kurt at his most appealing and it is manipulative and I think that that is <laughs> present and yet it's very Effective. But did it remind anyone else of the movie St. Elmo's Fire, where like mm-hmm. I feel like is it plays that kind of character? Like I'm so charming, even though I say a lot of really horrible things. Um, like do some really yeah. questionable. 
It's a very we should rich... also point. What? Sorry, you go. We should just point out the meta joke there. He when he says no, not really. I'm I'm much more charming and cuter. He's specifically talking yeah. about another friend of his. Even it's, though it's, I got that, burn, burn even on got Hank that. McCoy. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I even yeah. got that. I was like, okay. oh, I know that joke. Like yeah. I was very really <laughs> proud of myself. I'm just gonna. It was embarrassing how proud of myself I was for getting that joke. Um, <laughs> well, I want to I want to bring you into this a little bit, Andrew, because I know you've got sort of some real thoughts about sort of the Megan and Brian relationship. What do you make of Megan's agency here? I will say first just that like how I would like to read their near kiss is that she has agency in that perhaps her powers affect him even as yeah. his like sort of desire affects her. That's how I want to read it. I don't think that that's made clear necessarily, but what's your kind of read on it? Sort of what is going on with her transforming into Kurt in this scene or a version of Kurt? Is that sort of yeah. her desire or is that his desire? Is it both? It's both for sure. I think the the power set here is adding a lot to the symbology. Mm-hmm. Megan, as we know, is an empathic metamorph. So she changes according to the desires of the people that she's around. And that that's problematic from a lot of consent perspectives too, right? Um, her ability to control those emotions when she finds herself being, you know, reflecting uh, um, Nightcrawler's lust, let's call it. <laughs> uh, so I, I think that's certainly a play. I also think the aftermath of the scene shows that like Kurt knows he did wrong. Mm-hmm. He knows he had a crush on this woman and he shouldn't have been this kind of playful thing with her. Um, so so he has this awareness of his own actions that I think maybe contributes to some of the morality of the scene. But again, there's a romantic component to that as well in the idea that Kurt is, of course, trying to control himself, but he can't, which is perfect because that's exactly how Megan's powers work. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of intersecting symbols at play there that I think takes it into this fantasy realm in a way that a romance comic without resorting to, you know, elves and fairies and mutants um, <laughs> probably can't accomplish. I mean, I, I want to read her transforming into him as not just just a reflection of him but a reflection of her desire to not be kind of the perfect person that she has to be for Brian oh yeah like that is something I would really like to read into this scene you know the way that she appears is a reflection of Brian's appearance and a reflection of her desire to fit in and be beautiful and be a certain kind of woman right and we saw in the last issue sort of her reverting to her more monstrous appearance where she has the hug with Kurt in the rain right he has been set up prior to this as something of a symbol for you know the difference that she's rejecting and some there's something mm-hmm. very potentially powerful to me here in her transforming into him in terms of that's her grasping that difference in her in terms of her grasping not being the perfect woman and yet still a problem because she's still becoming another man right she's becoming Kurt instead of which mm-hmm. and but yeah. maybe that's one of the things that makes it I don't want to say I'm going to say okay but I mean that okay in a in a realistic she is when she is upset last week last issue when she's upset and turns into her natural wolf girl form or she starts to that is her like that is her being herself and losing the ability to be brian's perfect manic pixie dream girl but she's i i do think she (laughs) desires kurt i agree with you but she's she desires kurt and she says well i don't have to be brian's dream girl i can just be kurt's dream girl instead which okay not exactly agency but also kind of realistic for you know a young girl who's basically meeting the second boy she's ever liked right you know like she's she's navigating this stuff so i like the point that you brought up that she's kind of in both situations like i can be this man's version of like what he like the perfect girl because that's how it's presented in a lot of comics like when you decide to become a version it's it's for a man and i guess this is how it does relate to to romance comics in a way however i will make a distinction in romance comics when women are what will happen is they'll start presenting themselves for men and it will often be too sexy and then another man will come along and be like oh that's not really who you are and then they'll like revert to what them that man likes but it will also be realizing that that's what they really are and I feel like that's not quite Mm. as happening here like you get that she is deciding that's also who she is I don't even think she's like in at least what I have seen in my limited view of this character she hasn't even thought about what she agrees with for herself mm-hmm. and so yeah. her agency is up in the air and I think that's signaled so it's, it's definitely more progressive than a romance comic in that way if mm-hmm. that makes sense well let's talk about that you know people changing to be more conservative or like less sexy let's talk about the Kitty and Rachel shopping <laughs> yeah. scene I mean I could literally talk about the <laughs> magazine all day but I want to make sure we touch on that 
that as well. And don't just don't just focus on Kurt Wagner. So what was going like you brought up that scene, Sydney, as you felt it was unconventional for a romance comic, which I was interested in. And was it because of the relationship between the characters? Or what was it that sort of stood out to you about that scene? There's a lot of things that's unconventional. I uh, mean, not unconventional, it will be unconventional in a romance comic. So first of all, when women shop in romance comics, they are greedy, like you're supposed to look good for a man. But if you are partaking into in consumerism for yourself, and not specifically for your home or for a man, and it's just for yourself for enjoying shopping, like it is bad. Like you are labeled as horrible. There are a few makeover stories, but once again, you're being made <laughs> over for a man. So like mm-hmm. you wouldn't have shopping right. for any other purposes than looking for like a man or to show that you are a selfish woman. Um, and so there is that. Dude, they're not talking about a man in this, in this, if I remember correctly, they're not talking about a man in this thing. They're just talking about like wearing clothes and then they're playing with each other and you see a power dynamic between women mm-hmm. that only has to do with them. Like another man, it doesn't have anything to do with the power dynamic that involves them both liking the same man or anything like that. It's just a relationship that's purely between two women and so i really love that i also love that it like i feel like the clothing was like i love how it was set up more like a what we would think of as a mall or you have like the shirts that look the same on the rack like i felt like it was just more realistic you don't really get that in a romance comic you only kind of see window shopping and then the before and after shopping just in terms of what you would see in a comic um i love that it referenced marks and spencer without directly referencing marks and spencer because mm-hmm. as someone that lived in england i was like yeah. i know that's I shopped yeah. at that store, which is just a, kind of like a weird nerdy moment when you identify with a comic personally, where you're like, I know I love the comic because I somehow see myself in it. Like, <laughs> just for sure, but that's like a common Marvel <laughs> thing, right? Using the real locations. And in this case, it does like try to use real UK locations a lot of the time because I mean, part of this comic was supposed to appeal to like the British market that had already been mm-hmm. familiar with the Captain Britain character who'd been developed for that market. So yeah, I think it's very on purpose. Yeah, exactly. And you don't get that really like in a romance comic you wouldn't have gotten I don't think like, I also you know they could have referenced something from the 1950s and that I wouldn't necessarily have grasped but you don't get that as much you don't get as much of a play about like what's happening in the real world and I just love the power dynamic shift in here where she changes her outfit into this ridiculous 80s sexy outfit in her <laughs> it's like, such a what good is, outfit what is happening with that outfit like I, I kind of want to wear it and I kind of never want to wear it like it's just like, yeah. like, <laughs> like, like I just love how unapologetically 80s that outfit is so that was also but in a romance comic for looking that daring she would have been a bad girl like or the person mm-hmm. who changed her into that would have been a bad girl so you don't feel like the appearance of these women in clothing is not as much mirrored to whether or not they're morally good or morally bad and which is another thing because appearance in romance comics is always tied to if you're morally good or morally bad bad girls are always in red dresses or in sexy outfits and I feel like because this is about X-Men and this is about superheroes they, they there's a lot more there's a lot less of that moral coding with the with the shopping though you do get a little bit of hinted it she's like can you t- tame yourself she's like okay well if you're gonna make me tame myself i'm gonna put you in this ridiculous outfit and so it kind of pl- hints that they might be a little bit pushing at boundaries but none of them are like labeled as horrible if that did that did that answer your question as i went on for a little bit i was just like <laughs> no, yes that was excellent. <laughs> yeah no that's excellent yeah i mean i really like about that scene yeah the way it's sort of coming into it from this problematic thing of brian specifically has suggested that rachel dress a little bit more conservatively but rachel mm-hmm. is making a point that you know the way i dress is part of my identity see like see how it is if i switch up your clothes to reflect a different identity and how uncomfortable yeah. you are right yeah exactly and um and then and then, and then and there's no direct punishment none of these women are punished like for that at least in this up in this thing they're not directly punished for their clothing appearances or their well, yeah and i mean these are two teen girls that are just like given free reign to just go out on the town and like do this so like yeah they'd have <laughs> very little supervision or like anybody directly controlling them which i think is part of what's fun about this scene i think what's fun about it is that it's i mean rachel is making exactly sydney's point here right because Mm -hmm. so again sydney has done a excellent job of sort of grasping years worth of personalities these characters from 24 pages Mm -hmm. um but rachel is rachel is coded as a bad girl that's why brian has a problem with her which Mm -hmm. uh, which i uh, sydney hasn't read the previous issue um where that's more apparent but brian doesn't like how rachel is because Rachel is an independent young woman. I think she's supposed to be 17, 18. It's hard to say. Comic book age is weird, but she is a she is a teenager, young adult who this is who I am. It's who I want to be. You're not my daddy. Leave me alone. And Brian is asserting his control here. So this is her rebelling against it. And it's her teaching Kitty that, look, just because you happen to agree with Brian on this issue, you know, this is who I am. So let me be who I am. We've t- 
talked about Rachel's Rachel's clothes a lot. And I think that moment, I mean, it is so very 80s, the outfit. I just love it. <laughs> but but it, it does. I know it's like, very... Kitty, you're like 14. Let's make you look like you're 30 because that's really yeah. what every 14 year old girl wants. 30 at the club, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> yes. she is. But she is. It, it is. It is Rachel's. It is Rachel's sort of point of saying, "Don't try to make me you. You wouldn't like it if I if I made you me." And you're right. In this scene, at least, she's not judged for it. it, it I think this is them trying to break at the boundaries of Rachel is suddenly just very comfortable in, in Excalibur in general. Rachel is very comfortable with you know her otherness, her queerness, her individuality on so many levels in a way that Kitty is not and will not be for quite some time. I was just gonna say I wanted to say that's a really great point. I wanted to highlight what Anna said about like your your teenager we're gonna make you look like you're thirty. Like that is something very similar to romance comics, especially in Matt Baker St. John work where I feel like comic book age isn't known as Mavericks that like we don't know what's going on like I had no I didn't know that until you said these were teenage girls I didn't know for sure I kind of assumed they were mm. because that's what happens in comics where these these girls look like they're like I, like, I wish I looked like that as a teenager it would have saved me a lot of confidence yeah. issues but um, <laughs> but, but in comic book world we all get to look awesome so <laughs> especially when we're drawn by Alan Davis yeah, yeah. I would like Alan Davis to draw me in real life so you know <laughs> <laughs> Just remake me. <laughs> that would be great. Yes, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure. Kurt was very happy when he got to be drawn by Alan Davis. Yeah. <laughs> but um, do you have any thoughts about the Kitty uh, Rachel scene, um, Andrew? I mean, you've done a lot of work on sort of female relationships within the X Men comics. Like, is this sort of extending from that? Is this something that you know sort of extends from some of the strategies that we saw Claremont sort of using in Uncanny to complexify the female characters there? Yeah, I think it's a really nice kind of um um answer to where Rachel was left off in Uncanny X. Mm-hmm. where her character arc was largely about being completely insecure and, and not really having any kind of sense of confidence. Um, so I think what Matt was saying about her just kind of demonstrating that is great. And that's a, a very traditional way in which you showcase someone resolving an issue where they're now mentoring the next generation. Mm-hmm. So it's a really nice dynamic with Kitty, but it's a great moment for Rachel as well, just in terms of showing how she's grown as a character in contrast to her earlier iterations. It's so nice to see them sort of grow in conversation with each other rather than have that, you know, it's not like Kitty being mentored by Wolverine or like usually you have sort of that older male yeah. figure who's like the mentor for the younger girl you have these two women who have this complicated relationship and we, we've talked about the Days of Future Past storyline before where like in that storyline Kate Pride is a mentor to Rachel and then now we have Rachel becoming a mentor to a younger version of Kitty so I mean it's a really fascinating relationship and it's always so good when they have a moment to shine together and I really liked this scene yeah and specifically what Mav was saying again um, just about how that's in opposition to Brian who is a very yeah. I mean, he's trying to be anyway a patriarchal figure here mm-hmm. so having that mentoring exist in defiance of that power <laughs> yeah. nice we've talked about who's the leader of Excalibur and I was like should we talk about who's like the, the dad of Excalibur <laughs> I feel like, <laughs> I feel like it, what Brian wants to be but Kurt is way too irresponsible so I think that they might be dadless which is nice <laughs> well, well but, but and before we run out of time I, I mean I do want to I, I would like to touch on Brian a little bit because we sort of stopped talking about Megan and, and Kurt's relationship but I think one of the things that makes us root not only is Kurt just lovable just he's fun to read about and you know and yeah he looks sexy he's drawn sexy. but Brian like the the narrative very much wants us to hate Brian yeah. Brian is an ass like the, the, you it, it's not just that he's stiff like he's unlikable just in general he's less unlikable in this issue than he was last issue but still even like when you look at you know Megan's near cheating with Kurt is sort of excused because a few pages just like you know two pages later you see brian just sort of getting upset more upset yeah. that courtney's been kidnapped than anything that that has to do with with megan and you see megan like sort of reacting again as city pointed out through thought bubbles but mm-hmm. you see megan reacting towards brian not really caring about her and like we know from the previous issues that megan only exists in the form that she exists because she's trying to be brian's dream girl so we forget that maybe she was doing that for Kurt right we we know from last week that Brian was an ass and just stormed away from Megan you know whenever he gets upset like he does that sort of thing so the abusiveness of his relationship with 
tickler, I think sort of tempers. Well, all Kurt really did was tickler. That's not so bad, is it? You know, you, you, like you can sort of do that, which it shouldn't be. You know, you should you shouldn't excuse one problematic behavior because something else was more problematic. But I think that's sort of what this narrative is sort of doing with us for us. Yeah, and I think that that's part of yeah, that's part of how it can be problematic. But it's definitely how part of how it makes you it makes you want to excuse or root for Kurt's behavior because he's being fun and bringing her into a situation like spending time with her and making her laugh and making her happy in a way that Brian is not doing. So like I think he's actually Brian is you you I just liked Brian much earlier before Brian even got a chance to act horrible. <laughs> um, like I'm just gonna back it up. I'm gonna push it a little bit. The moment that it, it, it says Kurt, Megan, Rachel are home and, and then that look on her face and, and she's cause coming my love. Like I was like, uh uh-uh, uh, Brian is a problem. Yeah. I do not like Brian. I do not know what's gonna happen, but he's gonna be a jerk in some way, and I'm just not here for him. I'm here for for Nightcrawler. Um but like <laughs> but like so in that moment, kind of like I immediately forgot how problematic Nightcrawler also she's speaking with him, and then she gets with Brian's thought bubbles, and he's never once asks her how she's doing, like, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so yeah. I completely agree with everything that you're saying. I just disliked him much earlier. I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> offer a defense of Brian though like like one thing that you get in the greater context particularly from Sword is Drawn is he is severely traumatized yes. and depressed mm-hmm. yeah okay and that doesn't excuse his behavior no. in any way but I, I do think Claremont is packaging that like destructive behavior as part of this profile of you know his neglect of Megan he is trying to I think Claremont's trying to build uh, I mean we've talked about our theory on Excalibur as a whole is this is five people dealing with a collective trauma mm. we've talked about that from yeah, our yeah. first episode and I think Brian is the one who deals with his collective tra- with this collective trauma in the most negative of ways where you know the others are sort of reaching for family he's yeah. the one reaching for the bottle he's reaching for sex he's reaching for just right. self-destructive behavior completely believable not excusable I don't know I don't know that it always plays off as well as you know y- y- if you need a PhD and 20 years to sit there and dissect it in order to figure that out that's maybe a problem right yeah and 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 like uh, and i don't know that you need that but i i do think it is i think it's an interesting statement towards the you know are we looking for something to be unproblematic or are we looking for it to be realistic because certainly there is a point where a certain kind of individual goes through a massive trauma where he loses his twin sister and like resolves it by beating his girlfriend yeah that's a thing that can happen i literally i'm a twin i'm a twin i'm so i'm like oh no like oh god yeah right Right. That's so, yeah, that's if you go back to episode zero, we'll talk about that. Um, okay. Yeah, it, it is his backstory. And is that is it problematic? Yes. But is it believable? Absolutely. He watched his sister die on television. That's yes. hard. I would. No, that totally makes sense. And, and as far as reading anything, I'd rather be realistic than unproblematic, especially if you're, like there's a yeah. when you're creating stories, you're creating stories. You're not like you're not necessarily condoning what's in it when you create it. Also, just from this issue alone, I would like to say that if it was judge um, like romance comic men ryan would win like he would be the good guy that we all should have judged like yeah he seems kind of boring and stiff and maybe a little harsh but she was being stupid and so he would totally win nightcrawler would be the bad boy that well because if you kiss well then you're just like a bad guy so um yeah ryan wins in terms of romance comics just to let you know well i always i always figure kurt must be pretty good at kissing because he's got to navigate those fangs and (laughs) but um do we want to talk about the cover just like quick as kind of our final thing so this is one of the most iconic Excalibur covers so it's this cover with the janitor on the black backdrop do you want to walk us through this Andrew do you have it in front of you I almost want to like read the text of it but if you don't have it handy I've got it handy Uh, no I got it so it's um I think it's not the first anticlimactic Excalibur cover that would be number three which has kind (laughs) of an element number three is the one we, we talked about it last issue it's the one with um Brian with in, in, knocked into the dirt and stepped over by Juggernaut. Yeah, doing doing the yeah. classic like Allen Iverson over Tyler. <laughs> 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 Worked in a basketball reference. <laughs> 
So it's just this custodian guy suggesting a pretty insightful, I would say, reading of what's normally in superhero comics, where he says, cover, you mean with huge muscular heroic males and beautifully erotic females engaging in gratuitous violence against sinister criminal super brains and their ugly, stupid henchmen in exotic, moody, high-tech subterranean bases in the eternal struggle to prevent the good being washed away in a tide of chaotic, evil mayhem. Sorry, mate, you'll have to look inside for all that. <laughs> so why is this cover so kind of representative of the Excalibur brand, which I think it is in many ways? Well, anti-climax is sort of the big one, the idea that Excalibur is a book that's not going to take itself too seriously, and that is going to undermine the expectations of the superhero genre, while, again, incisively pointing out some of the major problematic tropes of that genre. I like, too, that it's you know it's subverting but giving it to you at the same time you know that it's like making that commentary on how like we're going to deny this on the cover but actually that is going to be inside the issue right because it's like it's a satire but it's like this kind of well-meaning satire where it is a traditional superhero comic and yet it's a traditional superhero comic with that kind of postmodern, self-reflexive edge to it i have a question for andrew um just because i was reading it already right but you've said this was the first issue you read right so if that so if you know nothing yeah you did you buy it based on this cover 14 and that's the cover that's the one that hooked you <laughs> <laughs> okay i'm from thunder bay and access to any comics <laughs> is real heavy there and this was like all i could get from okay. excalibur and i was like okay i'll try it I okay oh my god one but all you got is issue four sure <laughs> okay good so it was, just, it, it was just the Thunder Bay factor. I think we unfortunately have to wrap up because we're like running out of time. But are there other the sort of pressing final thoughts that any of you did want to bring up that we didn't get to? Because I always want to give everyone an opportunity to do that. I just want to say quickly, I hate Arcade so much. He's a Silver Age <gasps> oh. villain and I find him incredibly boring. <laughs> what? bring that up when i'm just what? saying that we're coming to the no, end of the episode don't need to defend it i can just state it and run away that's a well huge, thankfully that's a huge thankfully we're gonna see him again in the next issue so you'll have a chance to defend that statement which is incorrect okay. <laughs> so we're gonna get into it i'm gonna tune in just to hear you battle it out my i mean we talked about most of my 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 big issue with this one not issue I, my big point that i would want to talk about in this issue is this is a very we talked about a little bit it's very much a male gazy issue that you know is aware of what it's doing and trying to comment on it at the same time from the cover all mm. the you know we didn't really talk about callisto but callisto and arcade's assistant and everybody is like sort of aware of what they're doing and playing into it but what's interesting about it is we spent the entire time talking about that and we talked about the relationships and we mostly ignored the fight the actual <laughs> action of the yeah, you know, yeah. which 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 the book kind of does we talked about it with Courtney a little bit, but that's kind of what I think makes this interesting to me is because this really was a, a, a book that's about the relationships. Yeah, there's this whole murder world plot. It's called murder world, but you know, whatever. <laughs> Let's talk about shopping. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah, because there was there was the whole like body swapping thing that happened, which like, by the way, there's some amazing art there with, you know, as soon as they switch bodies and like Jester's in Nightcrawler's body and he's being very, very flouncy. And like the final yeah. panel is just him doing like a ballet leap and saying like, ta-ta. <laughs> it's really <laughs> excellent. Yeah. they'll come up next they'll come up next week but you know yeah we can talk more about arcade and more about the body swap there's a lot of fight next issue this there is this, mm -hmm. this issue is not so much about the fight it's it's about the relationships i know <laughs> as someone who doesn't really is not well versed in this i was fine with it as i said and i love that you brought me on to talk about it this was real fun really really fun oh it was great for us i loved having your voice on it um before we wrap up though is there anything that you'd like to plug in terms of your existing work and in terms of where people can find you if people are interested in hearing more about the kind of stuff that you get up to for sure so um if you want to read a comprehensive overview of romance comics and kind of just like get a taste of what it is I do. I have an article on panel by panel. I think it's issue 36, but it's like a whole romance comic special. You can just Google it. Um, a lot of other great stuff on there in romance comics that is not by me as well. So I highly recommend checking it out. And then I have um, an article in journal graphic novels and comics about uh, teenage romance comics and some weird father-daughter relationships that you can also Ooh. look up. Um, and if you want to hear what I'm up to, I am mostly active on Twitter at romance comic 
BKS, so kind of like a shorthand for romance comic books. Um, and it, it would be great to have a follow. I tweet about romance comics and all sorts of other interesting things on there. And yeah, that's kind of that's kind of it for now. Awesome. Thank you so much, Sydney. Yeah, and we'll link um, your work and obviously your handle when we share the episode. I was not born to live a man's life, but to be the stuff of future memory. The fellowship was a brief beginning, a fair time that cannot be forgotten. And because it will not be forgotten, that fair time may come again. Next, in one week's time, we will be on to episode five, in which we will be discussing the continuation of this storyline in Excalibur number five, Send in the Clowns, featuring more crazy gang, more arcade, more Courtney riding a rocket while dressed as Alice in Wonderland into a giant cake, <laughs> a cameo by Kitty's favorite band, and everybody getting very sticky, you'll see. We've also got another great guest lined up, who I know is very eager to chat about this issue, so you have all of that to look forward to. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode let us know you can reach out to us via our website goshgollywow.com where we've got some fun extras and via twitter at goshgollywow where we are always posting daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras thank you Andrew and Mav for another awesome conversation thank you so much Sydney for lending us your insight and expertise thank you for listening and a special thanks to Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our truly epic theme song play us out Thank you.